Friends, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. You'll find it on page 1,508 in the Bible in the pew in front of you, 1,508. Now, while you're turning there, who can tell me what the word glossophobia means? I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's not the fear of glossy things or of a glossary at the beginning of a textbook, Okay. According to a Boston University article, glossophobia is the medical term. It's a medical term for the strong fear of public speaking. Anybody else have that fear? Mildly, extremely? It's one of the most common phobias. They estimate some 75% of the world's population struggle with speaking in public. And if God were to call you to become a pastor in the pulpit, you would be like Jonah and run away, wouldn't you? It can be such a concern for some people that it reaches the level of an anxiety disorder. Can you believe that? One commonly held belief uh, that is backed by a number of surveys is that they discovered that the fear of public speaking can even be greater than that of being afraid of death. Whoo! How do you think I feel? A lot better after three years, okay? Uh, and with your, with your grace. Now, here's the truth, friends. Glossophobia also creeps up into our spiritual lives and into our Christian community. Whenever a group of people called by a pastor come together to pray, Right? There are some people who simply dread the moment where the pastor says, hey, let's circle up. And why don't you go ahead and grab the hand of the person next to you? And let's go ahead and bow our heads. And it's at that moment, those who fear speaking in public are like, oh, don't pick me, pastor. And that's when you hear, so-and-so, would you please open us up in prayer? No, pastor, I will not. Now, if you've ever trusted in Jesus for any length of time, you know that it is that prayer is often understood as one of the parts of the trifecta of being a good Christian boy or girl, right? Most of our discipleship models teach us and train and require us to do one of three things, actually all of three things, read the Bible, go to church, and pray, right? And isn't this what most of our evangelism tracks and training tell us we should say to someone who newly puts their faith in Christ? What do you, if, for those of you who have ever led someone to salvation in Jesus, right? It usually culminates in a prayer where we get them to pray out loud. So we get to do something where they're even more afraid of doing that than death, right? And we invite them to face one of their greatest fears, praying out loud, And then after they accept Christ and they say, now what do I do? We say, read your Bible, go to church and pray. But what we don't do is we don't then teach them how to do those things. We don't then model for them to do it. How many of us forget to even invite them to come to our church with us, right? And I'm not picking on anybody in here because that's how I was taught. That's how I was trained. That's the things that I've relied on. Now, now, friends, don't get me wrong. Reading your Bible, going to church, 
and prayer are indeed vitally important for every one of us who has put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you want to flourish in your relationship with God, those three things are vitally important to have as being particularly regular habits occurring in your life. But why is it that when we tell people that they should do these things, we struggle with teaching them how to do it? Wouldn't it be like telling your teenager that part of growing up and becoming an adult is driving? And then saying, hey, you should go get your license and start driving. And uh, while you're out there on the roads, eh, just don't do anything I wouldn't do. Would we ever do that to a kid? No, one, there's laws against that, right? Unless you're living on a farm, let's be honest. Uh, but two, uh, that we would be putting our children in danger. And, and it's similar when we tell a new believer or when we tell a brother or sister in Christ, hey, just pray about it. But then we don't offer a way of helping them with that prayer. And no wonder why so many of us are afraid to pray in private, let alone in public. But never fear, friends, because Jesus is here. Amen? Jesus to the rescue. So today, as we continue our series on prayer, we're going to see Jesus teach his disciples. And by extension, you and me. It's not just for the benefit of the 12 guys who are dead and in heaven, but he instructs them as a way of instructing you and I today. He teaches us how we are to pray. But before we dig in, I want to point out some things about this text that we're about to read. If you are at all familiar with the Gospels, have you ever noticed that the only thing we read of the disciples specifically asking Jesus to teach them is to pray? They don't ask him to teach them how to walk on water, which would be cool. They don't ask him to teach them how to raise the dead, heal the sick, or cast out demons. All probably really helpful things, right? But they ask him to teach them how to pray. Now, to compound the importance of what we're about to read, I want you to keep in mind that Jesus' disciples were raised Jewish. They were Jewish men. The Jews pray about everything. You would think that if there was a people on this planet that knew how to pray, that were set up for success, had a great foundation, it would be the Jews and these guys because of their Jewish heritage. But the kicker is this. As they spent time with Jesus, they see that God, our Father, moving in ways to answers to Jesus' prayers like they had never seen or experienced before. And all of this is to highlight the very important fact that if they needed to learn how to pray, they, the disciples, needed a model, needed to be taught how to pray. How much more you and I today Friends. Now, another thing I want to point out before reading the uh, Lord's Prayer is that it is not a formula. 
It is not a magical spell that you use somehow to motivate or move God to giving you your greatest wish and desires. Rather, it's more of a model for the kinds, kinds of prayers that should regularly be on our lips and in our hearts. Now, there are some faith traditions who uphold that the Lord's Prayer is more of kind of like an incantation that can, in a sense, move God more than a humble or transparent cry out to God. I am not one of those who subscribes to this persuasion. Nevertheless, though, the Lord's Prayer is beautiful and instructive and should inform us in how we pray. And I'm so thankful, Tim, that we sang that song again because even as a song, it moves our hearts to communing with God in particular ways. So with that, would you please stand with me as our way of honoring God and his instruction for our lives, if you're able to. If not, no worries. Nobody's going to look down on you. And follow with me, Matthew chapter 6, page 1508 in the Bible in the pew, and we're going to start in verse 9. Jesus, continuing to teach the disciples about prayer, says this, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Verse 14, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Friends, this is the word of the Lord, his instructions to for you and I on how we are to pray, you may be seated. Now, I know some of you probably, as you were saying that, you wanted to repeat back with me, and you wanted to throw in some thighs in there, right? Thy kingdom come. Because what would the Lord's Prayer not be without King James English, right? Now, friends, the principle and lessons for us, I think, for today are pretty straightforward. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down this principle on the back of your bulletin or in your notebook. The focus of your prayers should be on God and his priorities. The focus of your prayers should be on God and his priorities. I think so many of us fall into the temptation that when we start out in prayer, we begin with the center of the universe yourself, right? We, I think, often rush to God with our list of demands, our pleas for help, or even our guilt and shame for sinning. As I'm thinking about uh, the ways I have, and I've, me personally, and I've observed a great number of people approach prayer, it's often like this example that I have of when I was a young airman um, working at the chapel at, uh, at Fairchild Air Force Base. I had a supervisor who was from the South, right? Uh, and and they, manners are a big deal. Pleasantries are a big deal. And uh, usually what would happen is he would come in uh, in the morning. He had to go by the, the service counter by the window, um, by the thing, and he'd come in and he'd say, good morning, Steve. And I would then begin to list off this list of things that I needed his time and attention on. 
And he'd stand at the window and he'd say, good morning, Steve. And I'd continue this list of things. And then he would finally say, good morning, Steve. And I'd be like, oh, 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 yeah. Good morning, uh, Mike. How are you doing today? How is your night? How's your wife? How's things? And he'd be like, oh, great. Thanks for asking. Now, what is it that you need? Friends, don't, don't we often rush into prayer that way? Where it's just right out of the gate. God, I need this, need that. This is happening in my life. Oh, I messed up. And we start with ourselves. And, and, and we find that our beginning is more about us than about God. And so this learns, this principle about focusing our, our prayers on God and his priorities leads us to our first leaven, uh, lesson, leaven, first lesson, slow down, Steve. If you're taking notes, write this down. Start with acknowledging who God is. Start with acknowledging who God is. Jesus leads off with our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Friends, that is a statement loaded with some weight. Let's unpack it a little bit. First, God is the father of a larger family. You have brothers and sisters who aren't biological, but they're still your brothers and sisters. Because the Bible teaches that when you came to faith, when I come to faith, when people come to faith, we become, get this, Jesus' siblings. Meditate on that for a moment. Right? Jesus is your brother. You are his co-heir, as Paul would later teach. We are to remember that God is not just the creator or king of the universe, but he's also your father who deeply loves you. He's your father. Second, he is your king. He is, in fact, the king of the universe and rules over all things. A basic understanding, a basic biblical understanding, a basic Hebrew worldview of heaven is that it is the ruling place of God. It's not simply a geographically separated place where God has his primary residence and he temporarily vacations as his second home here on earth. It is the place by which he looks after the affairs of the world that he created. Thirdly, we're told that God is hallowed. God is hallowed. Now, the word word hallowed is an old English word that came into existence around 900 AD. It's probably included here in the NIV because, let's be honest, the King James has become so influential in the Lord's Prayer, right? And sometimes it sounds almost heretical if you don't read it in the King James, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. How many of you, instead of saying debts, said trespasses? How many of you wanted to keep going? For thine is the power and the glory. And, and it's we, because it's informed a lot by our old English. And so the NIV keeps, a lot of translations keeps the word hallowed in there. 
But the one problem with using the word hallowed is that our contemporary ears have a harder, under, harder time understanding the original meaning and intent behind this word. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think of the word hallowed, I think of a World War II gravesite or the site of a Civil War battlefield. Do not we describe these locations as hallowed grounds? How many of you sports fans, where I'm going with this, count the place where your team plays as hallowed grounds, right? Do you see how difficult sometimes it can be to understand really the true weight behind us because of our contemporary usage? Because oftentimes when we understand the word hallowed, we mean it as a place of reverence, something to be respected. But did you know that the word in Greek here for hallowed is the word hagiazo? And it's a verb, not an adjective. It more literally means to make holy. So when we read, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, you can either understand that in one of two ways or better yet in both ways. God, you are making or you make your name holy. That's one way you can understand it. The other way is, God, I am to make your name holy in my life. And I think Jesus means both. When we say that God's name is hallowed, I think what Jesus intends for us to mean is that we are to glorify God by making his name holy. That means that when we demonstrate God's character to the world, we demonstrate his holiness. People Now, friends, his holiness is not tied to your behavior, okay? He will be holy even when you're the worst of sinners. But friends, we are called in this prayer by Jesus to make God's name holy by the way we conduct ourselves. I like how my Greek professor writes about it, what he means to hallow God's name. He, he writes this, this expression perhaps based on an ancient Aramaic prayer, means not only to treat God in his name with reverence and honor, but also to glorify him by obeying his commandments. One of the things that Heather and I constantly are trying to teach our children is that the greatest way they demonstrate that they love us is by obeying. Is by obeying. You demonstrate that God's name is hallowed, is holy and revered and respected, when you obey. Acknowledging God in your prayers includes your commitment to obedience. When you pray something in the lines of hallowed be your name, it's much akin to saying a prayer of allegiance to God's rule in your life. And this is the way Jesus says we should start off our prayers, by acknowledging who God is. Now, the second lesson from the Lord's Prayer that Jesus quickly goes into is that we are to acknowledge what he does. He continues on in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, contrary to popular belief, God is not sitting around on some cloud up in the cosmos waiting to dispense whatever we pray and wish for, okay? He doesn't have clouds with naked angels playing harps, flying around him, just waiting for you to pay attention to him 
to talk to him, to put your prayer quarter in so he can dispense to you what it is that you need. That is not what God is doing or does, okay? He has been and will continually be uh, making his will become reality in your life. Jesus teaches us to pray for God's will to be done. Not yours, not mine, but his. And it's not just a, a limited to some time way off in the distance, some point in the future. I think oftentimes when I've prayed this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I've often thought of like sometime way after I'm dead. Or at least when I'm like in retirement years. Right? But he doesn't just limit it to the future sense. Have you noticed how he says that we should pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Friends, when you leave this church building above our doors in Portland as it is in heaven, and Milwaukee and Vancouver and wherever you happen to commute to, okay? Didn't have enough room putting it up there. But it's a reminder that we're to do something with our lives. I've met so many brothers and sisters in Christ who live like they're simply abiding their time, they're twiddling their thumbs, waiting for Jesus to come and make things right again. And their work and their recreation is just passing the time. Is he back yet? Nope. All right. Punch the clock again. Plan that vacation again. Try not to go into too much debt because that stresses me out and I'm just going to abide my time. Many brothers and sisters have no concept of what it means to make something of this world that reflects what the future kingdom of God looks like. What if you and I made it actually a priority to be about what God is doing in this world today and we committed ourselves to making Portland be as much as possible heaven on earth I'm not talking about your favorite restaurant, okay, or your favorite recreational activity, but actually that, that sinners would say, that, that place on 143rd and Burnside feels different, feels good. That neighbor, every time I go to their house, feels like a little piece of heaven. which may include some cooking and some other things, but you get what I'm saying. The more I read the Bible, the more I become convinced that the mandate by God to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that they were to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, okay, that doesn't mean to put it in a chokehold and strangle everything possible out of it, friends, okay? I'm convinced the more I read that, it means that we are to partner with God in making our current world more and more like what it will be in the future. The Bible starts with a garden and it ends with a garden-like city. Does your home, does your house, your address, because that's the first place you start, does your work center, does your workplace, if you still have a job, does your neighborhood, does your city, does your church feel like a place of shalom, of peace? Does it feel like walking in to a beautiful but garden where you just breathe in fresh air and you just sense God's presence. Friends, the second thing we learn is that we acknowledge what God does, what he is doing in our world, 
not only that, but also in our lives. He wants you to partner with him in making this world more like the third lesson is, and this is the good, this is the part where you've been waiting for. Uh, the third lesson is, okay, this is where we ask God for the stuff we need. Jesus continues in prayer that we're to ask God for our daily bread. Now, I believe that if you were one of his disciples and you heard this statement, that in your mind you would have been transported back to the time of your ancestors when they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years after their rescue from Egypt. In that story from the book of Exodus, we learn that though the 40 years of wilderness wanderings was because of the consequence of Israel's unbelief in God to do what he said he would do, God still provided for them. This most clearly seen in the provision, the daily provision of a bread-like substance called manna. Did you know manna is technical term for, what is it? That's all that it means, right? It sounds so cool and holy. It just means, what is it? There's a, there's a, a church, love them. They call themselves manna house. You, next time you say, oh, I go to manna house. Oh, you go to what is it house? Just teasing. It just means, it just means what is it? It, it was a bread-like substance. It, it kind of was like, um, in my mind, I think of Wheaties with, coated in honey. Anyway, uh, it fell from heaven every morning. And in this provision, you were commanded by God to collect only enough manna. What is it? For the day. If you collected any more than your daily need, with the exception of preparing for the Sabbath, let's not get too technical, uh, that it would rot and get moldy and maggoty overnight. Okay? There are some people who, on Monday, they would collect enough for like, like the week so that, man, I just relax and hang out and watch the football game. All week, and then they woke up the next morning and found that all the other stuff had maggots, mold. It was gross. Now, implied by Jesus in this lesson is the discipline of asking God daily for what you need. Not simply weekly, monthly, or yearly, but daily. We are to go to God and ask Him for what we need. And it's not an annoyance to God to daily ask Him. There's a parable of the persistent widow. You remember her story, right? This widow wanted justice, so she goes to an unrighteous judge. Every day and every night, waking him up at an obscene hour. Give me justice. Give me justice. And finally, she wears the judge out. And he says, not because I care about you, but because I want to shut you up, I will give you justice. The moral of the story I believe that Jesus has for that is, if that's how an unrighteous judge would approach a persistent widow... How much more your heavenly Father. It does not annoy God for you to go to him daily. But some of you are like me. Where you pray to God once, you know he hears you, and you just keep on trucking. We're told to ask him daily for what we need. Friends, not only I think is this uh, harkens back to the Exodus and the daily bread, the manna. What is it that fell from heaven? I think it also, in the minds of the disciples, would go back to that time where Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, where he's fasted for 40 days. Anybody ever done that before? Okay, I can barely go 24, maybe 36 hours, right? Imagine 40 hours without food. Jesus was hungry, right? And he was told by Satan, command these stones to be turned into bread, and it will be done so. And you remember how Jesus responds? 
man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think Jesus is saying, not only do you need to ask God for what you need daily, but you need to daily be in God's word because the answer for your prayer may just, in fact, come from the scriptures, friends. Notice how he doesn't say you need to understand it all. He just says you need to daily be into it, friends. It does not annoy God to talk to him daily, and it does not... And the best thing for us is to be in his word daily. Ask God for what you need. The fourth lesson is this. Forgiveness is really, really important. Really. You like the emphasis there? This point is so important that after the main context of his prayer, Jesus says in verses 14 and 15, that our experience of forgiveness by God is tied directly to our ability or inability to forgive others, those who sin against us. I believe this is Jesus' way of emphasizing that the condition of your heart is just as important, if not more, than what you pray or how often you pray. He says, and forgive us our debts, right? We ask God to forgive us as we also have. Have is a past tense term, right? And, but there's also this future sense. As we, it's a continually thing that we constantly do is we constantly forgive those who sin against us. Who in your life right now do you have beef with? What name do they go by? Brother, sister, son, daughter, neighbor, pastor? No, not that one. Uh, boss, cousin, President, no, not that one. Uh, What is it that you have beef against, right? Where someone has done you wrong and you have been unable to forgive them. Jesus says, if you do not forgive others, how can you expect God to forgive you? Isn't that hypocrisy? Isn't that arrogance? Forgiveness is really, really important. Really it is. The fifth lesson for us that we need to consider today is that temptation is a slippery slope that leads to hell. Temptation is a slippery slope that leads to hell. Have you ever struggled with Jesus saying, lead us not into temptation? Has anybody ever thought about that phrase for a moment and said, let me put on the brakes. Jesus, what are you actually saying here? Because on one hand, it sounds like God could lead us down the path of temptation. It sounds to me that if you take it a certain way, it means that as I follow God, that I could find myself in temptation. Lead us not into temptation. I've struggled with this. But then, if we consider the verse in James 1.13, and it's going to be up on the screen, Jesus' brother says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So if we take that verse and we pair it up with this verse, we have to conclude that Jesus is talking about something else. That God does not, in fact, lead us down a path of temptation. He does not lead us in the line of fire of sin. He's talking about something else. Friends, I think there's several things that he's getting at. First, 
we have this internal and external battle with our adversary, the devil, and our flesh. I'm convinced that what Jesus is teaching us is that we are to ask God to steer us clear from temptation. This is a call for God to have his hand on the rudder of your life and to say, you correct my course. If I am careening towards temptation, that iceberg that will sink my life, then you yank the rudder the other way and steer me clear of it, Lord Jesus. He is to direct our affairs. He is to direct our, the course of our life. Now, friends, I have to be very, very, very um, clear on something. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin. But temptation is the vehicle by which sin and Satan use to steer us towards the kingdom of hell. But when you pray, lead me, Heavenly Father, not in temptation, you are asking God to steer you clear or to shine a big, fat light on the things in your life that are causing uh, you to lead down the wrong path towards the evil one. Second, when Jesus here in this part of the prayer says, not only lead us, uh, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, Jesus acknowledges that we have a very real adversary, the evil one. We know him as Satan or the devil. And it, the evil one's desire is to wreak havoc in your life. He does not have a good day, and he hates you, and he doesn't want you to have a good day. So we are encouraged to ask God to deliver us from Satan and his attacks in our lives. And this should not be a one-time ask, my friends. But every time you go to God in prayer, you should, I should be just as relentless in asking for God's direction and deliverance as Satan is relentless in trying to get you, trying to get me to disobey God. If he won't give up, we should not give up. Asking God to direct and deliver us. Now, friends, as we begin to close, as we begin to land the sermon today, I hope, it's my desire, you can see how important the Lord's Prayer is as a model for how you and I ought to pray. And not just once in a while, but on a regular basis. It's not meant to be a formula or a routine that somehow moves or convinces God to move His hand in a particular way in our favor but rather because God is your heavenly Father and He loves you very, very much. And He's the King of the universe. All power and authority is His to do things good and great and holy in your lives. He works holy for your good. Every day. I hope as you make the focus of your prayer on God and his priorities that you'll learn more and more how to pray in this way, to pray the kinds of prayer that God responds to and that as you experience more of his response in your life, that you'll see his glory and his goodness shining in you and through you. Amen?
Friends, would you please stand as we close in prayer today?